Good morning. We are thankful that you are here this morning, whether you are visiting with us. We've got some who are visiting. We've got some who are former members here who are visiting. We've got our members who are here, whatever state you may be in on that list. We are thankful that you have chosen to be here this morning. We are thankful to be with you as well as our family. You know, the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse number 7 that he compared ministers to earthen vessels or jars of clay. Sometimes we feel like that. We feel like uh, sometimes it's, things are going great. Other times we need a little bit of a recharge. And uh, just on behalf of my family, I'd like to say thank you to the elders and the congregation for the opportunity for us to be gone for an extended period of time and to be able to go to polishing the pulpit. It's encouraging uh, to me especially, but to our family as well. And we appreciate that opportunity to be gone and to come back and share some things with you that we have learned through our time there. But we certainly appreciate that, appreciate those who were able to fill in. And we're just always glad to be home. We've said it several times over the last couple of days, not only our own bed, but even among our own congregation, our own people. I'll remind you one more time, we're glad you're here, but don't come back tonight, at least not here to this building. We hope that you'll come to North Hamilton, though, and be with us as we look forward to singing and being with our brethren there. Maybe you're like me and you would describe yourself as non-confrontational. I don't know that that's necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. I would usually describe myself that way. Sometimes people just tend to be either maybe a little more confrontational or a little more non-confrontational. We live in a world where I've often said that the world's favorite verse from the Bible has shifted over the years from what many people could always say, John three sixteen, to Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 1. It's the one that says, judge not that you be not judged. It's a little bit of a joke, but it's sadly true that many people in our world today simply want to believe the message that, that you can't judge me, that what's right for me is right for me, and what's right for you is what's right for you. You can't tell me I'm wrong. And there's a big high-dollar word that we refer to as postmodernism. We've created this genre or this I genre or idea of thinking that people would say that you can't tell me that I'm wrong about something. But I would say this morning that the Bible is very clear that there is indeed right and wrong. And as well, the Bible is very clear that there is the need sometimes for correction in regards to what is right and regards to what is wrong. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 16, Paul would tell the young man, the young preacher Timothy, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, the, the child of God, the Christian may be complete or perfect or mature, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Just a few verses later in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 2, Paul would tell Timothy along the same lines, preach the word, be instant in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, and exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. Just from those two verses alone, we understand there is a need sometimes for correction or for being rebuked about something. But even then, we have a real-life example. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul talks about Peter, and he says these words and giving us a real-life demonstration, for I withstood Peter to his face. I'm not a fan of confrontation sometimes, but, but it's needed. And Paul would even write by inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Scripture that he had to withstand Peter to the face. There was confrontation. He had to tell him that he was wrong about something. 
But while I believe that it is absolutely necessary that we do this, that we go through the idea of correction or rebuke, I believe as well that there is a process. You see, God has given us many things in this life, and and like most things in life, there is a God-ordained, a God-approved way to go through something like this for handling this type of situation. He's given us instructions, just as He has on many other things. And actually, there is a wonderful example, not even from Galatians 2, but from the Old Testament that we want to look at this morning that will serve as our main text as we consider grace in rebuke. If you've got your Bibles, you can be turning to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 is where we will begin this morning. You know the story very well. In fact, most of the world does as well. In 2 Samuel, actually chapter 11 and verse number 1, it happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Now what follows after that very simple verse, if you're reading scripture, you might gloss right over it, not think anything else about it. But what comes after 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse number 1 is the most incredible story that we could probably even ever imagine. In fact, I would submit to you this morning that I don't think Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese, Alfred Hitchcock, anybody that you want to name could come up with a story quite as good as what happens after 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse number 1. It's something that movies are made of, really. You would watch a movie that would involve the same things that we're about to read about, and you would not even think that that would be included in the Bible. But yet, after we read that David remained at Jerusalem, we understand that there is sometimes a need for rebuke. You see, this morning, as we're going to go through this lesson, we're going to consider the process The process that the Bible would tell us to go through, and that begins with the need for rebuke. What happens in 2 Samuel chapter 11 is not exactly a context or a passage that we often consider in this light. But if ever there was a need for rebuke, if ever there was a need for someone to be corrected, it's what takes place there after chapter 11 and verse number 1. We've got sexual immorality. We've got deceit. We've got drunkenness. We've got murder. If ever there was a need for rebuke, there absolutely was a need here in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and as we're about to go over to chapter 12 in just a moment. There is sometimes a need. We've already looked at the passages of Paul's letter to Timothy, but even in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 19 and verse number 17, the Bible records, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin against them, or excuse me, not bear sin because of them. Leviticus 19 and verse number 17. So whether you knew it or not, we go all the way back to Leviticus and we see the idea that yes, there is sometimes a need for rebuke. Jesus, the son of God, says it himself. Luke chapter 17 and verse number three. He says, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents forgive him. 
There's absolutely sometimes the need in our lives for rebuke. We may not recognize it. We may look at David and see what he did here and say, well, I'm not like that. But that doesn't mean that there is not the need for rebuke. One of the interesting things I think about this passage and in context of grace in rebuke is the fact that David didn't send for Nathan. I'm jumping ahead a little bit. I hope you remember what takes place here in these two chapters. But as Nathan comes to David here in just a few moments, David didn't send for him. In fact, we often have trouble recognizing our own sin. We struggle with recognizing the shortcomings in our life. Think about it. Sometimes when we're caught up in sin, the first person we call is not often the preacher or the prophet in this case to say, help me with this or I have this problem. Many times we'll want to cover it up. We'll want to bury it. We'll want to keep it hidden where no one can see. No, there was a need for rebuke, but David didn't send for Nathan. In fact, what happens is the Lord sends Nathan. If you've got your Bibles open there in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we begin again in verse number 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. Consider with me for just a moment an alternate universe, if you will. What would have happened if David had never repented? What would have happened if Nathan had not gone to David? Would he have ever repented? Would David have died in his sin? Would David kill again you say wait a minute he's a man after God's own heart we we call him that he is but but he's also guilty of murder would he have done it again it doesn't seem like it but what would have happened if Nathan had never gone to David if the Lord had not sent him if it hadn't have been for Nathan what would have happened to good King David who is called up in this sin who is indeed of rebuke There was a need for rebuke here, and sometimes we stand in need of rebuke. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1, we joked about just a moment ago, and and kind of joked, but it's still true. We must judge, even though it says there to judge not that you be not judged. We still must judge. In John chapter 12 and verse number 48, Jesus says, He who rejects me and does not receive my word, has that which judges him in the last day. The word that I have spoken will judge him in that last day. So there is a need for judgment. Jesus says you will be judged. In fact, if you've got your Bible, look at Matthew 7 again, because it's not just verse number 1, but look later in verses 3 through 5. In fact, chapter 7 and verse number 1 is not just a statement on not judging because he goes on to say in verses 3 through 5, he gives us that example of the beam and the speck. That sometimes in our eyes we have a beam sticking out so far that we're basically knocking others upside their head trying to reach and help them with their little speck. There's a judgment there. We're trying to help them with their little issue when we have a large issue. Jesus is saying here that there is not no judging, but proper judging. When we are correct, once we get the beam out of our eye, then we're able to help others. We're not perfect. We don't have it all figured out, but we are able to then encourage others. That involves making a judgment and telling someone there's a problem in your life. There is a speck in your eye. There is a need for rebuke. But what's important to think about is the fact that the Lord 
sent Nathan. And we'll come back to that in a few moments. Number two this morning, though, in the process, we don't just see that there is a need for rebuke. But here in this chapter, in this passage, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we read about the rebuke. So not only do we understand there's a need for it because of what David did, but, but God, by inspiration, the Holy Spirit, by inspiration, shows us how it happens. Chapter 12 and verse number 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Here, Nathan tells David a parable, if you will. In fact, Matthew Henry, in his commentary on the Bible, says that Nathan fetched a compass with a parable. I like the way that was worded. We sometimes talk about people in the world losing their moral compass, that they need to be pointed the right direction. Nathan fetched a compass with a parable. And he's going to tell this parable to David to help him see his sin, to rebuke him, if you will. And what happens after their exchange is Nathan delivers a fourfold accusation against King David. If you go on down to verses 9 and 10 or so down through there, you see Nathan's response in that he makes this accusation against the king. He says, first of all, that David had acted ungrateful for Jehovah's blessings. He tells him, secondly, that he had despised the word of Jehovah and that he committed adultery with Uriah's wife. Number three, he says he committed murder by smiting Uriah with the sword of the people of Ammon. And that number four, he took Bathsheba, a woman that was not available for marriage, to be his wife. Nathan, as the prophet, comes to David and he just doesn't just tell him he's wrong, but he delivers this fourfold accusation explaining for him, outlining for him exactly what he has been doing and has done. Now, what's interesting here, I think, from 2 Samuel chapter 12, is that we get a bit of an insight into our world today because we can't exactly tell the tone of Nathan's voice. What do I mean by that? Well, like social media today, like Facebook, like email, like text messages, we can't always tell somebody's tone. And so what's interesting is the only hint that we get is in verse number seven, when, of course, David responds to the parable with anger, ready to basically tie someone up, we would say, string them up. That's how David responds. And Nathan responds in verse number seven with you are the man. You're the one. You're the rich man in this parable. Now, I don't know about your Bible, but in mine, there's an exclamation point. And we learned long ago about what those mean. But even then, I don't think we can tell the tone. Did Nathan yell it? You're the man. Did he offer it with that sort of uh, artistic or even uh, like a play or musical with that sort of you are the man? I don't know. We may not be able to tell for sure. But he still calls him out in this rebuke for being the one who is guilty. 
I believe that there is grace in this rebuke, as the title of our lesson suggests. I believe that Nathan probably did use the proper tone, that he probably did use the proper attitude in going to David and telling him that he's wrong. But I also believe that part of the grace in the rebuke is the fact that there is a rebuke. David could look at Nathan and say, someone loves me enough to tell me I'm wrong. That's hard in our world today. It's hard because we don't like to be told that we're wrong. And so when someone comes to us, we get mad at them. We get angry and we turn back on them sometimes. We sometimes refer to it as like a a kicked dog. You kick the dog and it snaps back at you. The dog who's been injured will sometimes come back at you. And that's the way we react. I believe that there is grace in the way that Nathan handled this, telling of the parable, calling him out. But in the same time, I think part of the grace comes from the fact that Nathan was willing to tell David, the king, that he was wrong. In Hebrews chapter 3 and verse number 13, the Hebrew writer says, But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened Through the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort one another. We might say correct one another. Rebuke one another. Help one another through this life while we have time so that we don't become hardened. Because what happens is no one will ever tell us that we're wrong. No one will ever tell us that we're caught up in something and we become hardened to that. We sing songs like that. Break my heart. Because my heart is hard. Because I build up this way in my life that I don't want to hear anything from anyone. You can't tell me that I'm wrong. I think a couple of lessons that we can learn from Nathan here in this passage is, number one, we see the source. As we've said from the beginning of the lesson, the source was God. The Lord sent Nathan. Nathan didn't get on his high horse. He didn't put on his perfect badge and ride over to David and tell him, I'm perfect and you're wrong. The Lord sent Nathan. The source was from God and his word. At the same time, I think a lesson we can learn is we see the sin. Now, while Nathan does not exactly detail it in the exact same way, he doesn't necessarily say, hey, David, this is what you've done. The parable accomplishes that. But Nathan is willing to call sin what it is, sin. Sometimes we struggle with that. We struggle when we want to help someone with reminding them, it's not me, it's not that I'm perfect, but it's the Word of God which I'm trying to compare you with as I try to compare myself with. Not only that, but it's a sin. It's a sin what you're doing. It's not a choice. It's not something that you just prefer. It's a sin. And we have to call sin, sin. And those are two quick lessons that we can learn there from Nathan here in this passage. But not only do we see the rebuke, or excuse me, the need for rebuke, and the fact that there is a rebuke, but thirdly, this morning, we see the reception. Not only is there grace in rebuke, which again, I think comes from the proper tone and the proper attitude, but it comes as well in the fact that we're willing to do it, but there has to be grace in reception, There has to be grace in the reception. In 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse number 13, we get a bit of a glimpse into how David reacted. After Nathan has not only told him he's wrong, but then gone on and told him of some of the punishment that he will receive, in verse number 13, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. 
Now, this is not often our response to being told we're wrong. In fact, we've created a whole new phrase that says what? Don't shoot the messenger. That's what we tell people sometimes because we're afraid of what's going to happen to us. So we've made this phrase, hey, don't shoot the messenger. But that's not what Nathan says. Nathan delivers the parable. He tells him he's in sin. And David doesn't respond with, hey, well, you know what you did to me last week? Do you know what this guy over here has been doing? David says in the grace and his reception, I have sinned against the Lord. Even after the judgment, David offers this grace. You may recall Psalm chapter 51 or the 51st Psalm that David writes those words. And the Bible tells us after his sin is brought before him and he recognizes that he was in need for rebuke, that he was sinning against God and what he had done. He says many things in the 51st Psalm, including for I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is always before me. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Do not cast me away from your presence, O Lord. Take time today. Take time this week and read that 51st Psalm. You'll see a man who doesn't puff his chest out and say, well, you know what somebody else did? Who probably hit his knees who probably was going to go home in prayer to God and write these words because he recognizes the sin that he has committed against God. We, I think sometimes as I look at this passage about Nathan saying this, about Nate, David's anger welling up within him. He's spitting mad, his face is red. He's so angry to go find this guy until Nathan says, you're the man. And as he probably turns white as a sheet, he may even drop to his knees then. As he recognizes he is the one who has done this. He doesn't blame anybody else. In his reception of this news, he's willing to say, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, just because we offer grace in rebuke doesn't always mean or guarantee that we'll get the correct reception or grace in reception. You might say, well, I said it nicely. I told them that in love. In fact, we know the words of the wise men are true in Proverbs chapter 15 and verse number 1 that a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. That's true. We understand that from our life, from our dealings with each other and and co-workers and things. but, But at the same time, you might say, well, I did that. I offered it in kindness and in love, and they still didn't want to listen. That may be true. But as we think about not only the grace in rebuke, but the grace in the reception, one thing that's interesting to consider is that we never know which side of this equation we might be on. Sometimes we might be David. We might be the person who's wrong and in sin. And then yet sometimes we might be Nathan. We might be that person who's doing their best, who's following after God, and who needs to go to someone and help them with their spec. But other times we might be the one who is wrong and we stand in need of correction or rebuke. The word rebuke, I think, even in this idea is a little harsh. We think about something that is harsh, but but let me submit to you, it doesn't have to be. We can use the word correction. We can use whatever word you want. But sometimes we fall like Nathan and sometimes we fall into the shoes of David. Let's make application to ourselves and then the lesson will be yours. There's an example in 2 Samuel chapter 12, but we also get some instruction in Galatians chapter 6 and verses 1 through 4. Now in our Bible class and adult classroom number one on Sunday morning for the last few weeks, we've been really studying this passage and considering it. 
But it says there, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. Go back with me to the outline for just a moment. The need for rebuke. Paul says there in verse number one, if any man is overtaken in a trespass, if any brother is wrong, overtaken in a trespass, there's a need for rebuke. Number two, the rebuke. Paul says there still in verse number one, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. There's the rebuke. And he even gives us some of those same words of doing so in a spirit of gentleness. You who are spiritual are the ones who can partake in this process. And even number three, the reception. It's, I think, here implied in the Christian spirit. But even in verse number two, that we would do this for others. That we would bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. But naturally, as we look at the New Testament, we see it implied in the way that a Christian should behave. That the reception should be done in a right manner. It should be done with grace as well. As we said a moment ago, not only in considering Nathan and David, but even in considering the words of the Apostle Paul. We never know if we're going to be the Nathan or if we're going to be the David. And chances are, we're going to be one, then we're going to be the other, then we're going to be one, then we're going to be the other, several times throughout our Christian walk. We need to offer rebuke sometimes to our brothers and sisters, not because we are judge, jury, and executioner, as we sometimes say, but because just like Nathan, the Lord has sent us. He's made it our responsibility or part of our responsibility to help each other on our Christian walk. And let us remember the ultimate goal, as stated by James in James chapter 5, in verses 19 and 20. Brethren, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, sounds like the need for rebuke and the rebuke. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns the sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death. And cover a multitude of sins. That's the goal. That we can cover a multitude of sins. That we can restore one who is in error. A sinner back to the way of Christ. May we offer grace and rebuke. Not only simply by loving our brothers and sisters. And the world enough to point out their error and sin. But also by learning from the grace and the kindness that Nathan showed. As he tells the great King David. A man after God's own heart. You are full of sin and stand in need of repentance. When we think about rebuking or correcting or encouraging one another, we don't often think about the fact that the Lord sent Nathan to David, but I think we can learn a lot from them even this morning. If you would, let's put our Bibles up, and if you use a songbook, you can be taking that songbook out. We're about to sing this song of encouragement in just a moment. I have decided to follow Jesus. What you're going to do in your life as a career, as a job, as a moneymaker, that's an important decision, but it's not the most important decision. The person that you're going to marry 
is an important decision. And I would even submit and make a hard argument that it's the second most important decision that a person makes. But it's not the most important decision. I have decided to follow Jesus. That's the most important decision that a person can make. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never made that decision. You've been considering that. This song is meant to encourage you that through its words, you would consider what it means to follow after Jesus. We oftentimes put on the screen God's simple plan of salvation because it is the most important thing we can do in this world. It is what saves our soul. Not just that we can do it by works, but that we become obedient to what God has told us to do. We are baptized for the remission of our sins where we come in contact with the blood of Christ that does wash away our sins. And then the Lord adds us to his church. We can decide to follow after Jesus. But the good news, and maybe sometimes the bad news for us, is that we continue to decide. And while that's a great decision, we can decide maybe a day later, maybe a year, maybe five years or ten years later to decide not to follow Jesus. We're about to sing this song in just a moment as well to encourage you. Maybe you've become a Christian, but you have decided not to follow Jesus any longer. Just like some of those apostles and disciples did, or the, some of the disciples did in John chapter 6, you turn your back on him and walk with him no longer. It's a very sad state to be in. This song is meant to be sung as well to encourage you that you might come back to him. Repenting of your sin, confessing it before him, and he is faithful to forgive that you can again walk in the light as he is in the light. But it's a decision that each one of us must make, not only at this moment, but every day of our lives. But as a matter of convenience, as we are gathered here this morning, we'll be singing this song to encourage you either to become a Christian or come back to him as we stand and as we sing. <laughs> 